morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are in this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live, of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, and dawn, and dawn. No, I'm not stuttering. Um, this is the night that we change, uh, you know, we rotate our clocks backward an hour, Spring forward, fall back, you know, the old cliche. It's daylight savings time ending. Yay! You know, there's some discussion. In fact, I think there's even legislation where by next year, they're going to go to permanent daylight savings time. I don't like it. I like time that kind of keeps track of the sun, you know, where noon when the sun is on the meridian. I mean, come on. When daylight savings time, everything is 15 degrees off. We're off enough as it is, geometrically, in the hyperdimensional thought space of civilization all around this rotating globe. Okay, enough being M and, and all that. Um, we have a lot to get to tonight. We have a really intriguing show, as uh, Ed Sullivan used to say, a really big shoe. Um, and we'll get right to it. So for all of you who are new to the other side of midnight. Here's the drill. We have a section on the website called Radio with Pictures, and we do that. We put up pictures. And tonight is a heavily imaging-laden show. We're going to be talking about images of Mars and environs in the not-too-distant realm of space and time. So you want to be able to go to the website and look at the pictures on this little gadget you hold in your hand called a phone, a smartphone. Andrew and I were talking this afternoon about big, dumb phones. Oh, we, we both had them, you know, uh, the ones where if you dropped them on your toe, you had to go to the hospital. Anyway, um, for those of you who are new to the show, what you want to do is go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says very boldly, and you're, you're going to see that we're going to take you there. Will the real Mars please stand up? 50 years of deliberate NASA color confusion over the red planet. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And then under the same banner at the top of the guest page, there's an item that says to listen to the show. Under that, it says guest page. And then fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you to the section of Radio with Pictures where the images and other items for tonight are presented. Item number one. Um, a week from tomorrow night, Mountain Time, they are going to try again to launch the Artemis One huge SLS rocket Orion spacecraft combination on a 25-day that's how long it's going to be this time. Depends on the launch window, and that's changed, so the timing has changed. A 25-day mission returning a human-rated spacecraft to the environs of the moon. And as I've said uh, for a couple, three weeks now, given that it's going to launch at 12.07 a.m. Monday morning, which is 10.07 p.m. Sunday night here, and our show goes on the air at 10, seven tetrahedral minutes into the show, into the other side of midnight, we may be able to go live to Cape Canaveral and bring you on the other side of midnight 
the live beginning of humans, of Americans, of men and women returning Americans to the moon. At least that's the plan at the moment. And we'll know before um, the launch, like probably a couple of hours, whether the count is proceeding as nominal or normal and whether we're actually going to have a launch uh, in the wee hours, uh, wee hours, yeah, like 12.07 a.m. Uh, Eastern time or 10.07 uh, p.m. my time on Sunday night. Depending upon what happens, we should be in what's called the terminal count. Whoever picked that term? <clears throat> terminal count, okay? And we will know at the top of the show whether things are proceeding or whether something could go wrong in that last seven minutes and they have to hold. And then if they have to hold, there probably is maybe a 90-minute window for when they will have to scrub and then recycle the count for the following morning, which would change the times because it's all dependent on where the moon is when you launched if you're going to go to the moon, right? Right, of course. So um, all of that to be decided in the next uh, week and we will know live Sunday night, a week from now, literally whether we are about to go back to the moon or it's going to be delayed once again. Not quite sure yet. I'm working on something kind of special for Saturday, the preceding night leading up to the Artemis launch, but it isn't finalized yet. But we got a week, and a week in this business is like a year. So uh, it's kind of like politics, you know. The cliche was a year in politics is really a week. So um, tomorrow night, we're going to do part two uh, with extensions of our discussion last Sunday with Steve Bassett and Barbara Honiger and Georgia Lambert, and maybe a surprise guest or two relating to this incredibly interesting uh, congressional report on UFOs slash UAPs and things that go bump in the all-domain universe of the Pentagon. And there is new news. So I will not uh, uh, kind of reveal any surprises now, but you might want to tune in tomorrow night when we will, in fact, be dealing with surprises. And the biggest question of all, which if you check the banner, you'll see, why the hell should we care about any of this stuff? Why are we doing these shows on space and what's out there and what's waiting and how we find out and how do we penetrate the fog of war, i.e. the fog of NASA surrounding what's really beyond the Earth in the solar system? Because again and again and again, my uh, foundational statement made you know decades ago that NASA really does stand or never a straight answer, certainly when it comes to what's in the solar system, is coming true once again, as tonight's show, dealing as it does with the uh, extraordinary, <clears throat> I'll say it, outright lies they've been telling about Mars for 50 years. I mean, they've been lying about an entire blankety-blank planet and the real mystery, which we're going to get into at some length tonight, how in an international community of all kinds of scientists and people not dependent on NASA for a paycheck or a good word 
or a uh, uh, up, you know, smile on Twitter. How has NASA gotten away with lying about an entire planet? And how have they inveigled all the other space programs to kind of go along with them in the lie? I mean, these are not trivial questions. And when I say lying, you know, it's like, I can prove tonight, we will prove tonight conclusively, NASA has been lying about Mars. But the big question, which we will probably not answer, unless someone in the third hour calls in and says, well, this is the reason, reading from a memo somewhere inside. Um, and that will not happen probably until uh, the president signs the latest NDAA. We're whistleblowing. I know Steve doesn't like that term, but telling the truth without fear of legal repercussions from anyone in or outside NASA, from anyone or in or outside government, from, from the FBI, from the CIA, from the National Security Council, from any of the deep state agencies, will be forbidden by law. And as soon as the president signs that document, which we're expecting now in the next couple, three weeks, this is a second government action apart from what we're going to discuss tomorrow night, having already been signed and as law as of a year ago, um, we can expect some really remarkable tales from the inside, tales from the dark side. And we may actually have someone call in and say, well, they've been lying about Mars because, and then they will give us the reason. I have some things on the record about that that I'm going to uh, relay in the a few minutes to the audience here and around the world. I mean, we are in something like 195 countries. Yes, note the number, 195. Uh, that's how many countries are in the UN now. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, um, so item number one, a week from tomorrow night, there may be a live launch from the Cape and the beginning of the U.S. government effort to return humans, Americans, to the moon. And... We won't know for a week and 24 hours, actually 23 hours and 53 minutes and change as of right now. Okay, moving on. Item number two. Every year at this time, I just kind of uh, talked about it at the top of the show. Every year we have to remember, okay, it's spring forward, fall back. We lose an hour. Actually, we gain an hour because you can sleep in another hour tomorrow morning. There is a live launch at 5.50 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 3.50 a.m. my time, following this show. They are launching a Cygnus resupply rocket from Wallops Island in the pre-dawn darkness of the East Coast. But the really cool thing is it's going to leave the ground, rise into the sky, disappear in the southeastern direction, and then, because of the rotation of the Earth and the timing, it will break into sunlight while the ground cameras are still in total darkness. So it could be quite spectacular if you have NASA television or you want to go to, um, uh, you know, YouTube and find the NASA channel on YouTube. It may be worth your while to stay up and look at this thing. You know, launches never get old. Or... You may want to just tape it, and then you can watch it when you get up after your extra hour in the morning. So, item number two, there's a nice story about the history of daylight savings time and then some of this legislation that could be uh, 
permanently instilling in the entire country daylight savings time forever and ever, amen, next year. Uh, I frankly would like it not to be daylight savings time at all. You know, I mean, that was instituted to, well, there's a whole bunch of reasons that are covered in the article, so you might want to go and read that. And I really love that painting. It's a gorgeous painting. And I'm so glad Keith was able to get it posted because it really, I mean, carrying over the theme of time takes us to item number three. This is really, really, really cool. There are times when NASA really comes through with extraordinary data that because it's so far out, they literally feel they don't have to censor or, you know, manhandle or keep us from knowing. This is a time release video composed of individual images, color images, real color, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope over the last five years. If you look at the very top, you see it says uh, 34 days. That's the first image, 75, 132, 302, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a series of images of a supernova in the um, uh, Centaurus A galaxy. This is a compilation of two galaxies that millions of years ago collided. It has an extraordinary history. Go just Google Centaurus A. It was one of the first radio galaxies ever discovered back in the 1950s when radio astronomy was being born in the minds and the technology of an individual citizen scientist named Grote Reber. He wasn't even an astronomer. He was a Bell telephone engineer, and he put together the first, one of the first private radio telescopes and he discovered Centaurus A as one of the brightest radio sources of radio waves in the sky. Up until that point, um, we only thought of stars as, you know, light-giving objects, planets as light-reflecting objects in our own system. But it was Reaver who found that there were areas in the sky that were emitting, relatively speaking, intense amounts of radio energy. And Centaurus A, which is this beautiful, huge galaxy, 12 million light years away, which is kind of like right next door in terms of cosmological distances, um, in the direction of the Southern Hemisphere in the constellation of Centaurus. Centaurus, you know, like Alpha Centauri, that's also much, much, much closer, four light years away in the direction of the Centaurus constellation. Anyway, what you see in this GIF that Keith was able to post on the uh, uh, guest page is this time-lapse uh, photography taken over five years uh, with the time demarcation at the very top, the number of days from the explosion of the supernova. And you can see this, this light echo, this set of shells of light like rings spreading outward from the site of the explosion. What is that? That is the light, the intense light of the supernova reflecting off the clouds of interstellar dust that hang out in space between the stars in all galaxies in areas that are thicker and thinner. And if you have a thick area, it will reflect light very efficiently. And that at some point in the image at 
um, image one. Uh, let me do it again here. At one nine nine one days, one th- almost two thousand days after the explosion, like five years, the echo becomes double. You can see an inner shell and an outer shell briefly because this sequence is going by quite fast. That's dust clouds reflecting the light from the central point source supernova blowing up, becoming briefly as bright as the entire galaxy in which it is living. Uh, and this is just amazing. Now, the, the colored streaks, those are called diffraction uh, uh, lines, and they come from the light scattering from a bright star just out of the <clears throat> field of view in the upper right-hand corner, and the slightly different orientation of the Hubble telescope relative to that star when the pictures were taken. So that's what that colored bar stuff doing, uh, bouncing around. That's that's just uh, scattering in the telescope from that bright star that's out of the field of view. But you can look at this again, and the more you look, the more you'll see, and you can see that everything else in the field of view is very constant, except for these incredible light echoes caused by the expansion of the light shell, literally the wave of intense light coming from the supernova radiating outward at 186,000 miles per second, bouncing off the dust around the supernova and then having a slightly longer path length to get to Earth. And so you see this expanding ring. And in the very last frame, it's a double ring, given that you've got inner and outer light shells that uh, are equally reflecting the energy. It's just an amazing, you know, snapshot of um, what's going on all around us that in our incredibly brief mayfly span of life, most of us never, ever, ever get to see. Speaking of, speaking of brief lifespans, you know, I'll get the words out soon. Item number four. I did not realize until a, a day or so ago that last night, the 4th of November, was exactly 100 years to the night from when Howard Carter the British archaeologist who discovered King Tutankhamun's tomb in the Valley of the Kings literally discovered the tomb 100 years ago last night. So item number four is a very interesting article in the Smithsonian. Uh, read it carefully. It's well done. It's brilliantly illustrated. It's got all kinds of little nuggets that I didn't know about. But of course, the reason that it's relevant to tonight is it in essence what our work has been saying for the last, uh, you know, several decades, at least 30, 40 years, is that Mars itself is kind of like a planetary tomb with all kinds of incredible artifacts memorializing an extraordinary ancient series of Martian civilizations that not only existed going back millions of years, but have been totally and resolutely ignored in public and in publications by the space agency that we fund every year to the tune of something like $20 billion, give or take, 19.5 one year, uh, to find out if we're all alone. 
And they've been lying to us about that, too. I mean, what have they been up to and why have we been paying them to basically not tell us the truth? Well, that's the item of item number five, which is an article I did on the problem of the environment of Mars going back now literally 20 years. I wrote this in 2002. Um, I came across it the other day in preparing for tonight, and I read it. Of course, you got to read stuff, you know, it was so old that you don't remember what you wrote. It really holds up. Everything I said in this piece is still true because NASA still is demonstrably, as you're going to see tonight, not telling us the truth about what's on Mars. And let me give you an example where I was there at JPL watching the beginning of this extraordinary lie literally go down. Um, in fact, let me just read from the piece. Um, perhaps the most infamous account of the color of the atmosphere of Mars that still swirls around the release by JPL over a quarter of a century ago of the first true color Viking lander image, just one day after Viking touched down in the pre-dawn darkness Pacific time, of July 20th, 1976. Within a few hours of that historic publication, the release of the first color photograph from the surface of Mars, another hurriedly revised version of this first color surface image was suddenly produced. Correcting, JPL said, the initial color engineering problems of the first image. Decades later, one of those personally present at JPL, besides me, and curiously involved would relate a very different story of the incident. The witness was the son of the scientist in charge of one of Viking's three historic biology investigations. The labeled release experiment, principal investigator Dr. Gilbert Levin. His son name is Dr. Ron Levin, who is now also a scientist, a physicist at MIT. In the summer of 1976, when Viking landed, Ron was a newly graduated high school student assisting his father at JPL during that incomparable Viking summer, where I was present also covering the Viking story for millions of readers of a major magazine and a couple of broadcast TV networks. The following is from Levin's first-hand recollection of the whole affair, recounted in a recent book by science writer Barry de Gregario, the remarkable overreaction by JPL that occurred in response to Ron Levin's naive efforts to correct what seemed to him that July afternoon to be, quote, a deliberate if perplexing methodical distortion of the incoming lander Viking data. This is from Mars, the Living Planet by D. Gregorio, Gilbert Levin, and uh, uh, Phyllis Stratt, uh, published by Frog Limited in Berkeley in 1997. So here is D. Gregorio's narrative. At about 2 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the first color image from the surface of another planet, Mars, began to emerge on the JPL color video monitors located in many of the surrounding buildings, specifically set up for JPL employees 
and the media personally to view the Viking images. Gail and Ron Levin sat in the main control room where dozens of video monitors and anxious technicians waited to see this historic first color picture. As the image developed on the monitors, the crowd of scientists, technicians, and media reacted enthusiastically to a scene that would be absolutely unforgettable, Mars in color. The image showed an Arizona-like landscape, blue sky, brownish-red desert soil, and gray rocks with green splotches. Gil Levin commented to Patricia Stratt, his co-investigator, and his son Ron, look at the image. It looks just like Arizona. Now, I can attest as a kind of editorial side here that I was standing in the JPL Von Karma Auditorium, literally next to Carl Sagan when the image started coming in on the monitors, and Carl turned to a bunch of us and he said, it looks like Arizona. Back to De Gregorio. Two hours after the first color image appeared on the monitors, a technician abruptly came into the room, changed the image from the light blue sky and Arizona-like landscape to a uniform orange-red sky and landscape that Ron Levin looked at in disbelief as the technician went from monitor to monitor making the changes. Minutes later, Ron followed him, resetting the colors to their original appearance. Levin and Strat were interrupted when they heard someone being chastised in the hall. It was Ron Levin being chewed out by the Viking project director himself, James Martin. Gil Levin went immediately out in the hall and asked, what the hell's going on? Martin had caught Ron changing all the color monitors back to their original settings. He warned Ron, this was Martin, that if he tried something like that again, he'd be thrown out of JPL for good. The director then asked the TRW engineer, assistant biology team, Ron Geely, to follow Ron Levin around to every color monitor and change them all back to the red landscape. When Gil Levin, Ron and Patricia Strat did not know, even at this writing, is that the order to change the colors came directly from the NASA administrator himself, Dr. James Fletcher. Months later, Gil Levin sought out the JPL Viking imaging team technician who had actually made the changes and asked why it was done. The technician responded that he had instructions from the Viking imaging team that the Mars sky and landscape should be red and went around to all the monitors, tweaking them to make it so. Gil Levin said the new setting showed the American flag painted on the landers as having purple stripes. The technician said that the Mars atmosphere made the flag appear that way. As someone who was at JPL that afternoon and vividly remembers a similar shock when the Arizona Mars initially flashed on the JPL monitors was suddenly transformed into a Martian red light district, I now kick myself for not asking lots more questions. But this was 1976, and we all trusted our space agency back then. And when we come back, what we're going to do 
is we're going to bring on our first guest of the evening, Holger Eisenberg, and we're going to talk about the extraordinary saga of the changing and bizarre interference with the real colors of Mars. In honor of Howard Carter's 100th anniversary of looking into King Tut's tomb, this is from The Land of the Pharaohs, music by Dmitry Tiomkin. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Howard Carter only had to uncover the truth of one tomb. Tonight, we're going to try to penetrate the truth of an entire world. We shall return. everyone to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, November 5th, 2022. It's literally the 100th anniversary and a few hours of when Howard Carter opened the tomb, found the tomb, looked inside, and when his colleague said, I mean, he's holding this flickering candle, what do you see? And Carter is uh, recorded as saying, Things, wonderful things. Well, there are wonderful things all over the planet Mars. We haven't been inside yet to see what's inside these extraordinary ancient structures, some of which are still standing in magnificent ruin and some of the imaging. But we do have a overview now of the environment of Mars, and we know that NASA has been vigorously, consistently, and with bizarre persistence, literally lying to us about the environment of an entire world. 
The question I have had, and I don't think we're going to be able to answer it tonight, but we may have a few flickers of uh, uh, information as to what might be going on, is why would they have been doing this and so consistently for so many years? So what I've done tonight is I've put together a group of people, a panel, that I think uh, will be very um, helpful in answering the question. And my first guest tonight is someone who's been on the show many times before. We go way, way, way back when. In fact, Holger even wound up here in Albuquerque and we had a wonderful dinner, he and Robin and I, many years ago at a beautiful little restaurant down uh, downtown. Uh, Holger has done systems operation and consulting around Java-based enterprise applications since 1999 in Germany. And he moved in 2016 to Silicon Valley, and he now solves customer problems at a company that specializes in providing high performance for Java VMS. In his spare time, he applies software engineering skills on public data provided by Mars spaceflight missions, which include NASA missions and ESA missions. I'm not sure whether he's worked any on the Chinese mission, but we will find out tonight. While he's been working on this data uh, as an independent researcher, he investigated many, many years ago mysteries surrounding the 1997 Mars Pathfinder mission. Since then, he's offered public software services and tools to be followed, like True Color Photo Browsers over the Pathfinder Spirit and Opportunity missions, or space mission imaging raw converters. Data archaeology on historic Viking lander camera tapes has also been one of his projects. It's difficult to convince him about other sky colors on Mars other than human-friendly blue. Anyway, without further ado, Holger, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. And for the new people in the audience, kind of recount in your own words, how did you get caught up in this Sherlock Holmes level mystery that for more than 50 years, NASA for some reason has been lying about the atmosphere of Mars. Oh, that was a long introduction. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be back here again. Yeah. It's, it's a long story indeed. We uh, have time. Deepest, That's the yeah. beauty of long form radio. We and, have time. And it's, so start and at it's the surprisingly, beginning. It's surprisingly consistent over the years, at least what you hear in the public. And hopefully uh, some news from the website I, I manage. Uh, but it's indeed, it's the same topic as 20 years ago you had in the article and I also worked on. But uh, and there not not much has changed. Even with the with the modern two rovers now online on the on the planet, with the new camera technology, still the same results. <laughs> so start at the beginning. What got you intrigued with the Viking color that made you say, "Wait a minute, there's something not right here." Yeah, back then uh, in the. Uh, late 90s it, it was some the, the first part was the technology because I, I worked at a software company studied uh, computer science at college and uh, the internet was uh, relatively new only a few years old 
and compared to uh, to information sources you had uh, outside of the online world then back then it was uh, libraries uh, paper magazines the the internet with the fast uh, data access to raw data from science mission that was something completely new back then and that you especially that you could access it from from home uh, that was uh, revolutionary at that time <laughs> now everyone is running around with uh, with uh, direct access on the phone which didn't exist in 20 years ago or 25 years ago And that, that was one uh, motivation to look what what is possible. So you were kind of just technology. poking around. You were poking around in the archives, and you came across yeah, well, the Viking color data. Yeah, what what you call today web surfing. <laughs> that uh, may, uh, there weren't that there weren't ten thousand of websites back then. Uh, NASA had a big website. Uh, other in, uh, research institutes had, uh, had their websites, universities, some few magazines, and there wasn't that much more. <laughs> and, and you could access uh, direct the, the data from the Pathfinder mission, from the Mars Global Surveyor, which was, which was also new at that time in 97, 98. And that was amazing to download the images there, with uh, which which are which uh, barely fitted onto the computer back then in their large sizes. And uh, let's uh, find out what could be done with them and how they how they really look like. Well, if people want to actually see what you saw, which I of course saw live because I was there at JPL when this all went down. Go to item number six in my section. On the left is the original color Arizona-like view that NASA released with much fanfare that afternoon on the 21st of July. And then on the right, a few hours later, is this bizarre red, red light district landscape that I talk about. And that's been the bizarre color of Mars now since 1976 with some interesting kind of interruptions and inconsistencies, but basically uh, they turn Mars into literally a red planet. And we now have this on the record um, statement from De Gregorio, who went and found the technician through Gil Levin, who was ordered to change all those monitors that afternoon from Ron Levin's tweaking back to what it had been. And we know that his order came directly from the head of NASA, Dr. James Fletcher in Washington, D.C. And he, he furthermore, and there's more testimony further down in my article from one of the imaging uh, public relations people who was handing out color pictures to the press back then. His name was Yuri Vanderwood. I think he was Dutch. Anyway, he said he literally had orders from Fletcher to not only not release the first color image showing blue skies, but to destroy, to burn, to completely obliterate the negative so that you would never, ever see a blue sky on Mars again from Viking. And of course, this was pre-digital storage. So they thought they were kind of changing history. And again, it always struck me as bizarre because science progresses not only by your successes, but by your mistakes. 
they claimed there was a light leak in the photo imaging system in the camera that caused this false blue color. Well, if that was true, wouldn't you want to hang on to the data so you could make sure you never had that technical Here's problem? Message. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Ron has dropped off the, the web. We'll get him back. Anyway, I would think you'd want to preserve all the historical data, but according to one of the JPL employees, Fletcher told him to destroy that color negative so it could never be reproduced. Of course, forgetting that in a digital world, um, you can never really totally destroy anything except maybe Secret Service texts. So, Holger, please continue. There, there are indeed two interesting points with that history story. And uh, first, that the color image was shown live on TV. Yep. You see, you put switch on TV, another TV back then uh, on, on public television and uh, see the three color channels appearing within a few seconds over one minute maybe back then. That was live. And there were many journalists, engineers, scientists, all in the same room at JPL at the von Garman Auditory. That was, uh, I guess, that, that uh, mixing together of different people, this openness that doesn't exist anymore today. Because you still have the press conferences, but it's a perseverance rover or curiosity. You had to wait uh, a few days for the first uh, color image. And then it wasn't directly published, only in, in some strange uh, blurry way because the dust cap was on. And uh, the journalist could ask questions, but only limited to a channel without any direct contact to, to the local scientists or engineers. So this uh, informal collaboration that uh, doesn't exist anymore today. And, uh, and the image itself, this pair of two different colorizations we see here with the blue sky on the left and red sky on the right, that you find today still with uh, press release images of perseverance or curiosity. And the uh, image caption is then uh, the left side is white balanced uh, to make it appearing like uh, lit by sunlight on Earth for geologists. And the other one is a real surface color like you would see uh, when standing on the surface. And it's the image as uh, a caption, the image caption. I'm, my result is different. Uh, we continue to talk about today, but uh, it's it's the same style of presentation today. Then, so which image um, are we talking about? Your images or my image? Oh uh, yeah, your image was oh, okay, correct. Okay. And okay. Uh, the, the style of the official images on the on another website is still the same. You, you even you can see even two different types of calibrations, colorizations now mostly, uh, that the same image is shown in two different uh, settings. Well, you sent me an image, of a, a, a mosaic you made up a few days ago based on historical data going all the way, almost all the way back to Viking. I guess it did go to Viking. And we put that up tonight as a banner and then we posted it as your item number one uh, without, you know, lettering so people can see. That's all real color images from the surface of Mars by a variety of NASA missions. And the sky and the landscape and the color 
is you talk about consistency. There is no consistency. It's all <laughs> over the map. And yet science is supposed to, if it's real science, it's supposed to be consistent because these are all supposed to be carefully calibrated, meticulously checked out, no single point failure cameras on mission after mission after mission. And just look at that mosaic. Mars is any damn color NASA chooses after they've had lunch on a given Thursday to put out to the public. It's bizarre. Yeah, yes, it's uh, especially for for those who are not working in professional photography or doing much photography with with raw images. That is, it must be confusing, <laughs> and it is. Well, I think it's it meant is, to be confusing. Could could also be yes. Uh, uh, on uh, from my engineering perspective, uh, of course, you you can have some some strange differences, effects, if you do photography on Earth, you also see some variations in in that, but uh, for, for scientific... Uh, well, look I'm, at how many different images you got there. You got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen images in that mosaic. The color on each image is different totally different than the one right next to it. And these are supposed to be scientifically calibrated color. And, and there are manuals, inch thick manuals, detailing the elaborate tests they've done on Earth and in controlled dark rooms with color charts and, you know, color temperature lamps. And in other words, incredible amount of effort and millions of dollars spent on calibrating and you get to Mars and no two images look the same. And it's completely, totally baffling to your average American taxpayer. It's like, why are we paying these guys? They can't even shoot straight. And if, if you see uh, normal photography on Earth of the same location on Earth, a famous tourist spot, for example, if you look up images on on the web, uh, you have some variations, but in general, they, they really look similar. You, you recognize the situation and you see the similarities. Uh, well, it's, that, it's that a... It's clouds a, are white and the sand, you have sand colors on it, the ground and you don't have purple or green colors in. <laughs> it's different. a well-known phenomenon that you take a picture of a certain scene at noon and then you take it around sunset. The color is going to be redder at sunset. Why? Because sunsets are red. Why? Because of the way the Earth's atmosphere scatters color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that can be allowed for. And back in the days when we only used film, you used to use daylight film. Uh, when you shot inside at night, they had film that was balanced for what they call tungsten or, um, you know, warm colors, much lower color temperature, lighting. Um, there was a huge effort to try to get a color that was consistent. But when you look at what NASA's done on Mars, where we've spent literally billions of dollars to get these pictures, no two of those 13 images in your mosaic is anywhere close to being similar or the same. Nowhere. Uh, also, if you look at chemical photography from years ago, before the digital cameras appeared, you had a uh, you, you mean film? film? 
By the way, yeah, color slides film, for example, yeah. positive images. You you just take the, the your your your, your mic your, your your mic oh. has dropped off for some reason. Oh, oh. Say something. Oh, I'm I'm checking the sound here. Okay, you're back. Yes. Okay. Yeah, mics do that for some reason. Ah, uh, it's a, it's a automatic uh, noise reduction. Yeah, I, I got it under control now. Yeah, if you compare it with uh, chemical photography with with film years ago, right? You 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 could purchase a color slide film, and then take photos outside at noon, even at afternoon or in the morning or even under a, a cloudy sky or blue sky, and you always could got some somehow usable photos. It was really heard. close. It was, you know, if you were really yeah. an artist, if you really look carefully, you could see subtle differences, but not like that damn mosaic as your item yeah. number one from Mars. So you said, at the top of the show, you said, well, at least they're being consistent. And my, <laughs> my rejoinder is they're being consistently inconsistent you just came from presenting a paper on the latest mars lander the perseverance lander in jezero crater that lasted lasted landed a little over a year ago uh, about a year and a half ago on mars almost now two years i think and you had some very interesting experiences presenting this paper so why don't we pick up on the 50 years of consistent inconsistency of NASA images of Mars. Yeah, that was at the Mars Society Convention three uh, weeks ago in uh, Phoenix, Tempe at the ASU University. Uh, that was International Mars Society Convention and the first one in person since uh, two years. It was uh, nice to meet uh, people there again and uh, see presentations from NASA scientists also, engineers, uh, private enterprises. It was a good gathering together there. And I also showed uh, a presentation about the similar topic as here. Use, and I, today I show even some slides from this presentations here. It, it was a bit more technical, but let's see what we can, what I can uh, present here was possible. And it, it is a bit similar to what I just explained. With the color slide film, you had a fixed setting on the camera and you could produce uh, usable photos for projecting them at home or getting uh, prints from it without much adjustment. And uh, that I try to reproduce in the digital world with digital photography. And uh, to get to the slides, you go to the... Uh, uh, show page and then Holger's items. It's a separate page. Uh, if you just see Richard items, you get, need to go to fast links to items, Holger, and then you get to the 20 <laughs> photos there, items there. And uh, let's uh, start with uh, number one, uh, number 12. 12, is it? Uh, the whole mass globe there, twice uh, visible. You, you want to go down to number 12? Yeah. Okay, number because 12. You, you want to start with the uh, calibration now. <laughs> you don't mean 12, you mean 2. Or do you mean 12? Uh, 12, because the other are of the Lowell Observatory. Okay, so, all right. All right. Uh, a few words. We go back then. Uh, uh, Richard? Yes, Holger, Ron. Just 
just so you know, I'm here. I finally found a stable spot, so I apologize. No problem. Okay, Holger. So, so, we're, so we're clicking on Go number. Tw- we're clicking on yeah, number yeah. number twelve, right? Yeah, and okay. there we see uh, Mars from the outside, from space. And uh, there the question is, uh, create a photo which would be similar to uh, a normal color slide film camera, uh, which that would produce if you take a photo from space there, or if you uh, are yourself in this position there above the planet and look down on it. And uh, how to do it, it's uh, first you get uh, the raw information from the camera, that is digitally in this case, from the Emirates Mars mission, so a different uh, orbiter mission now, Emirates. Your sound quality is varying. Are you varying your distance from the mic? Uh, no, but uh, it could be, again, this automatic... Uh, well, kill it. Beat it to death with a stick. <laughs> We, we don't need AGC. That's automatic gain control for you audiophiles. I try it here. Okay, now I you're, know I have, now you're no, back. No, I have it again. Yeah, is it good? Okay, now you're back. Okay, so item number 12 is basically how do you calibrate a picture of Mars taken from the Earth, from spacecraft, from Hubble, I recognize the image on the right is the Hubble dust storm image from 2001. The image on the left is the United Arab Emirates camera on their spacecraft that they sent to Mars. And the little Mars on the bottom right, where that come from? Uh, that is just for comparison. That is both images on the right are taken by the Hubble Space ah, Telescope. Okay, okay. okay so the, the one, camera, but uh, so the small season. The it's small, the small image is a non-dust storm image. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because what I did, in fact, if if we want to go back up to my number, oh, hang on a second here. Let me get you know, click on me. Go to my number. Uh, nine, number nine, okay? This is the same Hubble image that was taken during the 2001 dust storm. And the thing that struck me is so amazing, and these are out of sequence, is if you, if you zoom in on the limb, which from space is the edge of the planet, where it, you know, goes from the surface up to space, you can see the, the atmosphere. And on the dust, uh, uh, image, dust storm image taken by Hubble, the atmosphere is a brilliant green. Now, why is this interesting? Because if the real sky is really blue, like on Earth, Rayleigh scattering produces blue uh, atmosphere, blue color of the sky. You know, mommy, why is the sky blue? Because of Rayleigh scattering, dear. Okay. If you add yellow Martian dust from a dust storm to blue, remember back in, you know, kindergarten when you were doing crayons, the teacher would say, well, if you mix yellow uh, and blue, you get green. Lo and behold, you mix yellow dust with a blue scattering atmosphere, you get green. And that Hubble picture with that enlargement in my number nine shows exactly what you should see when you add color to color and get something that we learned when we were playing with crayons back before uh, grammar school. 
the green, if it's really created by dust, uh, I'm not, because on Earth you can also see a green uh, border during sunset time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Thin. It's, but it's also just from from the spectrum because green is between blue and red. Sure, if we have a transition from blue sky to red dusty sky, then green is in between. That, that could explain it. Well, it's called additive color. You know, it's it's yeah. ba it's basically color theory. Now, if you want to look at item number eight, this is an enlargement taken from a photograph that the astronauts took from ISIS through a porthole, just an ordinary color photograph. And then on the right, there is a uh, uh, enlargement of a photograph of Mars taken by uh, Malin's wide-angle color camera on the MGS spacecraft. And you can see that in profile, the atmosphere of Mars, when there's no dust, is blue. And the atmosphere of Earth, when there's no dust, is blue. And they look identical on two separate worlds. And there's no, no mystery, no bizarre color shifts, whatever. And that is further amplified by image number seven in my uh, compilation. So anyway, back to Holger's images. Uh, yeah, and the, the, it is the same uh, color of the atmosphere because the camera is set to the same setting. And the setting is to, to uh, for, is, is set for uh, sunlight in space because sunlight in space is constant outside of the atmosphere. You have the same sun shining to all planets without any interference between the sun and the planet's outer atmosphere. And if you have the same camera setting pointing at two different planets and they're showing the same blue fringe around the limb, it is the same blue then there. <laughs> See, that's where you start from because that's how you calibrate images. You shoot known pictures of known uh, subjects that have known parameters, in this case, known colors. And then you take a picture of an unknown with that, quote, calibrated camera, and whatever you see is what you get. In other words, that's reality. But what NASA has done is to completely intervene in that process, which is how you get all those bizarre varying colors that we see in item number one of Holger's uh, images tonight. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. So what we're going to do is pause. And I'm going to, uh, when we come back, I'm going to bring on uh, Ron Gerbron and Andrew Curry. And we're going to mix this up a little bit where we talk about why is NASA doing this from each of their experiences with Martian color. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Tom uh, Richard C. Tompkins. Richard C. Hoagland. We're playing music from uh, the Land of the Pharaohs in honor of Howard Carter's 100th anniversary of looking into Tutankhamun's tomb. Music by Dmitry Tiomkin. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.